I'd love to have a great joke to start with, but I just can't think of one. So I'm just going to kick straight in. We are planning a brand new series. And this, as Joe said, the series is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Now that, even those three words, sound like quite a mouthful when you say them. Um, but I, I had a look at trying to figure out a sort of more pithy, sort of more accessible shorthand phrase that would cut it. And it just, I couldn't find one. Um, so we're going with this. And it's based on this book. And this book is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and it's by a pastor from New York called Pete Scazzaro. About 10, 12 years ago, I read a book by him. That book was called The Emotionally Healthy Church, and it really opened my mind and my eyes to just this whole deal of what even we mean by emotional health. What is that all about? And how um, that book particularly, I remember reading about how in the Psalms, in the Bible... You know, uh, what we read is not just everyone saying, everything's fine all the time, but actually being real about some of what's really going on with us. Anyway, that was a remarkable book. This, this book sort of encapsulates a lot of his thinking. And to be honest, John Wright, who's the leader of our movement, highly recommended this. He recommended it to every pastor in the Vineyard Movement. Um, I got halfway through it before I decided we needed to do this as a church. And so we're going to hit into eight weeks of this stuff, um, and today is the introduction. Um, It brings together the two concepts of emotional health and contemplative spirituality. I'll explain what I mean by those. By emotional health, I mean basically what and how, how we think and how we feel in ourselves and how then we act towards others. That's what I mean by emotional health. By contemplative spirituality, I mean how it is that we deliberately, intentionally slow down our lives so that we can be with God more. So when you hear those words, contemplative spirituality, don't think, oh, that sounds a bit convoluted and high-floating. They're long words, but basically we're talking about how we slow down our lives to be with God more. And both of these concepts are very powerful on their own. But combining them together is a, can be dynamic in terms of the way that we live as radical disciples of Jesus within today's culture. In fact, Scazzaro suggests that these two, combining these two together is the missing piece of contemporary of much of contemporary Christianity. There's a quote from him there. He says, The combination of mental health and contemporary spirituality addresses what I believe to be the missing piece in much of contemporary Christianity. When practiced together, they unleash the Holy Spirit inside us in order that we might know experientially the power of an authentic life in Christ. Do you want an authentic life in Jesus Christ? If you do, then it would be worth paying attention to some of this stuff. And it might even be worth, if you're a book kind of person, I highly recommend that you buy this book and you, uh, you can get it on Amazon for about seven or eight pounds. You can get it on Kindle. Um, I recommend that you uh, get it. And some of the life groups will be looking into this material, uh, this term, not all of them, but some of them will be uh, just following up with some Bible studies and things that would really help. The Samaritans define emotional health as b- being about how we think and feel. Emotional health is about our sense of well-being, our ability to cope with life events and how we acknowledge our own emotions as well as the emotions of others. It doesn't mean being happy all the time. But it does include understanding and owning our own feelings in a healthy way which enables us to also understand and own and identify with other people's feelings. 
It means developing and maintaining close friendships. It means breaking free from destructive patterns in our lives. It means expressing our feelings and our thoughts clearly and respecting and loving others without necessarily having to change them. It's about asking for what we need or what we want or what we prefer directly and clearly and respectfully. It's about understanding our own strengths and our own limitations and being able to resolve conflict in a mature and healthy way Solving problems by considering other people's perspectives. It's about a healthy sexuality, and it's about grieving well. We've got all that to look forward to in the next few weeks. These are things which most of us are going to have to work through one way or another in our lives. How soon we have to work through those in our lives depends on our experience and those around us. It depends on who has invested in us, who has mentored us, what kind of parenting or advice or input we've had, what kind of family context we grew up in. It is possible to grow emotionally healthy without any reference to Jesus. That is entirely possible. I know some people who would not call themselves Christians who are nicer, more kind, more loving, more balanced than some people I know who would call themselves Christians. You probably have the same experience. But at the same time as that, it is also possible to dig into and delve completely into contemplative spirituality, you know, deliberately slowing down our lives and maybe even taking some kind of a vow to be with God and yet remain completely emotionally switched off or socially awkward. And that sometimes comes across as unkind or uncaring. Can you relate to what I'm just saying? How it is possible to be one of these without the other, but there is great power when you bring them both together. That's what this book talks about. So I've talked about what I mean by emotional health. By contemplative spirituality, I mean slowing down to be with God. This includes being open to God's love in every situation, positioning ourselves to listen to him, and welcome his presence, not just in church on a Sunday like we have been doing, but as a daily and regular part of our lives. It means being with God and allowing him to be fully with and in us. It probably means practicing silence and solitude and prayer, a rhythm of prayer that keeps us in the Lord's presence. It means means resting in his presence. It means understanding that our life is a journey of transformation in God's presence. And it means learning to love other people out of the love that we receive from God. Wow, they're going through it up there. It may mean adopting historic practices by others in the past that can be very helpful for us. It means allowing our lives to be shaped by the seasons and by the Christian calendar rather than being shaped by the culture around us. You know, whenever we come up to Christmas, you'll remember, if you've been here a year or two, we always make a point of trying to say, look, let's make sure that we don't get shaped by what the culture around us says about Christmas, but actually we take this opportunity to really come back to God in the midst of this season. It means actively living within a community that passionately loves Jesus more than anything else. And even though separately, as I've said, these are both incredibly powerful concepts, There aren't that many people who engage with them both at a deep level. And yet when we do, we find that there is life there. People who engage in emotional health and spirituality find that it can transform churches and small groups and people's lives. 
And I think you find it in the Bible as well. And I've reproduced two verses from the Bible. I've put the message version up because it's a bit of a contemporary version. I just like the, the way it phrases it. I love this verse. This, is, this has to be one of my favorite and longest repeated verses in the Bible. Philippians 4. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the centre of your life. Now, long before I knew anything about the word or the concept of emotional health, I knew this verse. I knew it in the NIV version, which is don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, pray and present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. In other words, my reading of that is if I am anxious about anything, I can pray to God about it and he will come and some kind of supernatural peace, something which goes beyond what I can conjure up in myself, will come on me and will look after me. I've been telling God about that verse for 30 years. I've been saying, look, God, this is what it says. This is what I need. I'm stressed about X, Y, Z. I even write it down in case he can't hear me or he forgets. I used to write it. I write the whole verse out in longhand in my journal and go, there you are, God. Look, I've written it down now. I don't have to keep saying it to you. It's just there. You can read it for yourself. But what that verse does and along with the next one, is it captures this sense of something about our own well-being and something about the way that we press into God and something about joining those two together. And this verse also does the same sort of thing. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, Love the Lord with all your, your God, sorry, with all your passion and your prayer and your intelligence. This, Jesus says, is the most important, the first on any list, the first commandment, love God with everything, with your whole heart. But there is a second to set alongside it, which is to love others as well as yourself. These two commands, Jesus says, are pegs. Hang everything in God's law and prophets. Everything hangs from them. And if you think about contemplative spirituality, really that's all about loving God well and experiencing his love back, which is the first command. And if you think about emotional health, well, really that's about loving ourselves and therefore others well, which, we can, which is the second command, which we can only do when we've done the first one, which is to love God well and experience his love for ourselves. Do you get what I'm saying? It seems that these two concepts do belong together. And you might even argue, as Scazzera does in the opening line of this book, and I've reproduced it for you on your page, it's a bit fuzzy, that unless these two things come together, unless they're thought of or treated as being together, they can be dangerous. I've got it up here too. He says, Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly to yourself, in your relationship with God and the people around you. And then Scazzaro says, I know, having lived half my adult life this way, I have more personal illustrations than I care to recount. And if you want to read his illustrations, they're very easy to read and they're in that book. Instead of giving you his, I thought I'd give you mine. The danger for Christians is that we think that because we've prayed a prayer of commitment, we're now 100% sorted. We think as long as we read the Bible and go to church and pray and do all the right things, we'll automatically become this amazing person. And sometimes we don't realize that there is work involved on our part. 
Very few of us, very few of us, emerge from our family of origin whole or mature. We are all a product of our upbringing. For many of us, the atmosphere, the environment that we grew up in will have a profound effect on our own sense of well-being, our own ability to process emotions in a healthy way and our own ability to relate to others. We'll look at that more detail in this series. Becoming a disciple of Jesus doesn't guarantee a quick magic fix for some of the pain, some of the anxieties, the quirks, the habits, the comfort mechanisms, the coping patterns that we've developed over time. Often by the time we grow up, and which, if we're honest, many of us still carry around with us, don't we? In fact, I'd go so far as to say that I think there are believers who might, be, might have been following Jesus for decades, but who, when it comes to emotional maturity, still have a long way to go. I know this for a fact because I've met many of them, and because I've been one myself, and to an extent still am. There are many of us who believe the truth of the Bible, that our faith in Jesus can transform us, but for whom the reality of transformation feels a long way away and far from the truth in some places. Some of us are dealing with doubts and fears and anxieties and pain and stress. And yet, we're presenting an image to the world or even just to the church community which says, hey, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And we know, if we're honest, that whatever else, we're not fine. We don't like to admit it. We don't like to let our guard down in case we get judged or worse, still ignored or people kind of move around us because they don't know how to handle us. So kind of we just, some of us, we just kind of pretend, don't we? It's just kind of easier than being honest and vulnerable. I, I, the phrase came to my mind, we fake it till we make it. You know, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Jesus says, or Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone. And fundamentally, that is true. That's what we celebrate in baptism. A fundamental change in our identity. A new identity. And we think, oh yeah, that's great. That's it. We're done. We don't need to work that out. And yet for many of us, we do. We actually have to go back sometimes to understand a bit of the old. What went on there, how that affected us so that we can bring it to Jesus. Now, as I said to you, I probably wouldn't have used or heard of or thought about the phrase emotional health um, until maybe about 10 years ago in my life. I certainly never thought about it as a child. I grew up in a Christian family. I was well looked after. I was basically fine. Nothing particularly unusual about my childhood. My mum and dad were great, practically, financially. They were there for me, provided for me. But for various reasons, they weren't able to be emotionally, massively emotionally present. There was quite an awkwardness around emotions and around spirituality, and around sexuality, they weren't really able to enter into my world in the way that I would hope to for my kids. And certainly not to help me particularly understand or process my own emotions, my own faith journey. Luckily for me, there were others in my life who were, which was really formative for me. I've just been to a funeral of a a wonderful man who was probably one of the most formative people in my life in my teenage years. Um, but while I, and while I was part of a church and I was baptized at the age of 16 and I knew all the Bible stories and I loved to worship God and I had a half-decent relationship with God or so I thought, looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, I realized that I was basically fundamentally emotionally insecure. And that had a couple of specific implications on me when I left home, particularly as I grew into adulthood. I went to university, 
<clears throat> I found at university I just didn't like being on my own, ever, really. I actually hated it. I couldn't really deal with my own thoughts and feelings. I didn't know how to process them. I avoided being on my own as much as possible. After it, just because of the feelings and the loneliness that it brought on. I needed people, or rather I needed to be around people all the time, which meant that for me, I then overemphasized this sort of extrovert side of my character. I can be quite an extrovert at times. You might not believe that, but it's true. Um, but I would kind of overemphasize that, and I would kind of always look for something to do that was fun, someone to be with, someone to hang out with, somewhere I could receive some kind of approval. And that meant I could be a bit loud and a bit cocky and... Sometimes I wouldn't know really where to stop and then I'd say something that I'd regret later and then I'd feel stupid and ashamed and sad and lonely again. Also, as I began to get into relationships with the opposite sex, this had an effect that I could, be, the effect that I could become very insecure and very needy. My expectations of what I could experience from a friend were way beyond unrealistic. So I leaned heavily on those closest to me to try and get hold of some kind of a sense of worth or identity or value. And I had one relationship in it with a girl, and early in a relationship, that's not what you need. It made it very intense. And of course, I was going, this girl who I was going out with at the time, she also had her own issues to deal with. It was very tricky. It meant just that the relationship wasn't in any way healthy or life-giving. In fact, it was destructive because we were both leaning on each other for things that really we needed to go to God to get. Do you see what I'm saying? I've since observed many relationships, both in and out of the church, which come unstuck because something similar to that happens, because one or both sides bring their own insecurities, their need for approval, their need for love, and they expect that it will be completely met by the other person, who is, of course, only human, and even if they're amazing, won't be able to do that all the time. And so we always get disappointed or let down and there's unrealistic expectations that bring conflict. And the reality is, as I said, that only God can deal with these emotional gaps. Only when we approach relationships with both sides, secure in the truth and the love of God, will we have a chance of growing together. Actually, I'm not just talking about romantic relationships either. That extends to every relationship we have. Most issues we have in most relationships come about because there's a mismatch between what, our expect, what we expect of this and what we actually experience, what our expected outcome and what actually happens. Next time you find yourself coming into conflict with anyone about anything, just try taking a step back and exploring what's actually going on here in terms of the difference between what I was expecting and what I'm receiving. And if you're brave enough, ask the other person the same thing. That takes guts, but it's life-giving. And so for me, after I'd realized what was going on, trying to change my expectations, got together with Joe, even in the early days of our marriage, some of these issues would surface for me. And Joe was incredibly gracious as we steadily worked this stuff out and worked it through in the first few years of our marriage. Actually, for both of us, we learned that while we loved each other very much, and there was a lot of understanding and a lot of forgiveness for the odd things that we did, well, mainly the odd things that I did, um, we knew that while we could support one another in that journey together, fundamentally, and we learned this early on and we're still learning it, fundamentally, yes, we're here to love one another, yes, we're here to support one another, but fundamentally, we need to take our problems to Jesus and not just bring them to each other, expecting them to be solved. And don't get me wrong, 
I'm not saying it's never appropriate to share your problems with somebody else or to ask them for support. That's entirely appropriate in relationships. But what we've learned to say is, I love you and I'm here for you, but how can I best encourage you as you take this issue to Jesus? Practically for us, that means I'll have the kids, you go and have some quiet time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Something like that. And the, the more we do that, the more we grow in our spirituality, the easier dealing with our emotional health has become. The ancient practices of meditating on God, the prayer of examine, some of this stuff that we all think is from the distant history, actually have been incredibly helpful for us as we try and bring this stuff before the Lord. And so looking back, I spent all my 20s and a massive chunk of my 30s carrying these things around with me. And I look back now and I can see how those issues affected my life and caused me pain and heartache and caused me to do things that I probably wouldn't have done if I'd have known. I could recognise the behaviour at the time. I realised that it wasn't good or healthy. But at that time, I didn't really know how to change it. And I loved Jesus and I tried my best to follow him and I grew. And I worked out, as I grew, I worked out how to function pretty well. I was a worship leader and a life group leader and I was working in the church and God used me to encourage people. And I wrote songs and recorded albums. It wasn't until sometime in my 30s that I began to understand really what had been going on for me as a child, how my family upbringing had affected me, how my relationship with my parents had had an impact, and really to understand how I could, once I knew that stuff, bring it all before Jesus, trusting and knowing that he really can deal with this stuff. He really can take away pain and insecurity and struggles. And that's a powerful journey. It's one I'm still going on. And growing up in the church, no one taught me this stuff. You know, our traditional model of discipleship, how we grow as Christians, how we, be- how, we, how we mature as followers of Jesus, it doesn't really touch on this. In fact, sometimes it makes it worse. We might learn to pray and read the Bible and attend church and act respectably, but many of us would acknowledge that there are really many complex layers below the surface which we never really get to address and which many people don't see, but which are nonetheless important part of who we are. And that's what we're beginning to look at in this series. We're going to start by looking at our past, and we're going to start looking, and then we're going to come to how we grow from that, and how we deal with emotions, and how we deal with grief. And then we're going to move on to habits and practices and patterns that will help us really kind of stay right in there, connected with God, in a way that hopefully will be life-giving, and we'll, be, um, we'll, just, we'll just cause us the ability to transform. And so for the last few minutes, I want to just look briefly, very briefly, at some symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. I've taken these out of chapter one of this book. There are ten. Don't be alarmed by that. I'm only going to talk about each one for a minute or so. But these are just, these are just areas to think about. These are areas in which... Just, if, you know, if you re- resonate with something in one of these, then it might be just a bit of a giveaway that we, we've got some work to do in one of these areas. And so when people do these things, these symptoms of unhealthy spirituality, when we do this or when others do this, this is just an indicator that we've got some growing to do. And the first one is using God to run from God. I'm taking these titles from, from, uh, from the book. What, what we mean by that is creating God activity in order to avoid difficult issues or areas. I'm doing God's work, but I'm doing it for my benefit rather than his. 
You know, it means behaving well, perhaps. Perhaps we try and deliberately behave in a particular way so that somebody significant will see us and think something of us or think well of us. I've certainly found myself doing that. Holding to a certain theological point because it makes me feel better or safe. Using the Bible to judge somebody else. Or saying, here's a great one, saying, God told me this. When what we really mean is, I think God might have told me this. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see the difference? I say maybe for some of us that's just a symptom that there's something to look at here. I'm not saying any of these to make you feel bad. I just want to flag up that there are areas here which touch on all of our lives. Another one is ignoring sadness or anger or fear. You see, some Christians genuinely believe that those emotions, those negative emotions, are to be avoided and ignored and not to be trusted. In fact, some people think that emotions will stop and not to be trusted. And yet these are genuine emotions. And when we feel them, we feel them for a reason. You're feeling fearful or sad or angry. It's an indication that something's wrong that needs sorting out. It's true that we don't have to completely follow our fears and make decisions based on our emotions all the time. But it's also true that these things are very much a part of who we are. And so we need to acknowledge them, whether they're positive or negative. Scassara says in his book, to feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be the image bearers of God. So to the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God and others and ourselves well. Because feelings, our feelings, are all a component of what it is to be made in God's image. So even if we're feeling angry or upset, ignoring that is not going to help us. Facing it, talking about it, dealing with it, communicating, processing, you know, ignoring those emotions, is, it's just, it's not going to help. Another thing we tend to do is we tend to try, some of us anyway, die to the wrong things. And by that I mean this, it's true that the call to follow Jesus is a call to die to certain things in our lives. You know, Luke, 20, Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. There is a cost. Yes, there is a sacrifice. But you need to take that verse and then you need to put it in the context of the whole Bible to qualify what it means. Yes, we need to die to the bad stuff, the stuff that's negative, the stuff that's not helping, the stuff that's sin. But some people over the years have interpreted this literally and said, no, 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 we need to die to everything. Even the good parts of our life. If you die to the good parts of your life as well, if you, if you deny yourself emotions and pleasures and all the stuff that the Bible actually says is healthy and good, if you deny yourself that, you'll get closer to God. So some people have said. And that's not true. The emotion, the healthy desires, the healthy emotions, the pleasures of life, great things are to be experienced and enjoyed without any guilt. If we don't know that, then we've got some false ideas about who God is. And again, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to come and deal with those. Another one is denying the impact of the past on the present. Now, I've already talked about this a little bit. The Bible is clear that when we follow Jesus, a fundamental change happens to our identity and that we are, yes, born again. That was the phrase Jesus used. We are completely and we are fundamentally changed forever. But as I said before, that doesn't mean our past won't continue to influence our present in a whole number of ways. One way that was uh, quite funny, early in our marriage, um, 
some, a wise person said to me, was, we were talking about how, how we would deal with conflict together. And somebody said to me, just imagine Joe's mum and your dad coming together. And we sort of thought about this for a minute and we went, oh my goodness. <laughs> because the way that Joe's mum deals with certain things is very different to the way my dad would deal with certain things. And yet, Joe and me in, in invariably were a product of who we'd grown up with. So there were a whole load of stuff in her, there still is, about the way that she would deal things with things which she learned from her upbringing and the same for me. Yeah, We bring these things into our lives. However conflict was dealt with in your family is probably the way that you would naturally prefer to deal with it. Maybe that's a pattern worth revisiting for you and thinking about all of us essentially relate to others in the way that we've been taught to relate to others. And sometimes those patterns are destructive and they're unhealthy. And again, we need to really journey back to understand them. You know, anybody who says, well, my past has nothing to do with my present is probably denying something. We've all got stuff to revisit and learn from. Another one is dividing life into the sacred and the, the sacred, the secular and the sacred compartments. We all have this, humans have this uncanny ability to live compartmentalized lives. We think that Sunday is for church and God and every other day is for me. And I wonder how many of us will drive out of here and pronounce judgment on another driver on the motorway who cuts in in front of us. It can be very easy to think about God in our Christian activities around the church and praying and reading the Bible, but then not when it comes to work, study, finance, friendship, recreation, marriage, parenting. The church doesn't seem... Christians don't seem to have a great reputation over the years when it comes to these things. In some Western communities, the stats are pretty horrendous. They show very little difference between evangelical Christians and the world at large when it comes to attitudes to divorce, materialism, racism, sexism, sexual ethics. We all know people, we all know people who won't go anywhere near a church or won't even approach the questions of faith because they're put off by what they perceive is a mismatch between what Christians say and how they do. There is no sacred secular divide. All of life is sacred. And if we think otherwise, then again, we've got attitudes and beliefs that we need to bring before God and be prepared to have challenged. Another one is doing for God instead of being with God. Are you with me? I know I'm going through this quickly, but it's kind of an introduction. I want to whet your appetite for what's to come. Doing for God instead of being with God. Our Western church culture seems to place a high value on doing stuff for God. Some of us think that getting things done and being productive is more important to God than simply spending time in his presence. I often wondered myself if people who chose a life of contemplative spirituality, sort of monk-type people, really were actually Christians. <laughs> because their lifestyle just seems so escapist to me. When there seems to be so much to do for God. And that seems to be the way that I'm driven sometimes. And somewhere along the way, I picked up the idea that my job is to work hard, help people, share compassion, spread the gospel, heal the sick, pray for revival, save the world. And if I'm not doing it and I don't get on with it, then God can't do that. Just so you know, I'm not saying that. <laughs> That's the idea that I picked up along the way. Work for God is, again, quoting Scazzaro, work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval from others, buying into the wrong ideas of success 
and the mistaken belief that we can't, we can't fail. And the truth is we're human beings. We're not human doings. I think that's such a funny phrase, don't you? Anyway, we, can't, we can only give from what we receive from him. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are. You guys are doing really well. I'm nearly at the end. Um, spiritualizing away conflict. You know, no one likes conflict. And yet it's everywhere, all around us, in every situation, every relationship, every circumstance that means anything, there will be some kind of conflict. And yet actually not many of us come from families where we dealt with conflict in a really healthy and mature way. Often we find it's easier to sweep it under the carpet, to bury our tensions, to just move on. Which basically means lying to ourselves and lying to others. So how do we handle it? How do we handle it when we're faced with tension and disagreements? Do we talk behind other people's backs? Do we say one thing to one person and something else to somebody else? Do we promise to do something with no intention of delivering? Or do we give people the silent treatment? Just avoid them. Do we come out and criticize directly? Or rather than directly, do we just send someone an email? Do we only half... Only tell half a truth because we just can't bear to hurt someone's feelings. But actually what they need to hear is the whole truth. Kindly, sensitively, lovingly, but that's what they need to hear. Do we say yes when we mean no? Do we withdraw and cut off relationship? Jesus shows us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. His life was filled with it. He was in regular conflict with the religious leaders, the crowds, the disciples, and even his own family. Out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace all around him. He refused to spiritualize away conflict avoidance. Another thing that people tend to do is we tend to cover over our brokenness and our weakness and our failure. It's just a symptom that there's something going on for us. And there's often a prevailing pressure, isn't there, to present ourselves as strong and spiritually together. Perhaps we experience some kind of feelings of guilt because we just don't measure up to some kind of Christian ideal. And yet we forget that no one is perfect. No one has it all together. The heroes of the Bible certainly were not perfect. The Bible doesn't spin any of the flaws or weaknesses of its heroes. Let me read you a paragraph. Moses was a murderer. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Peter rebuked God. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob was a liar. John Mark deserted Paul, Elijah burnt out, Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal, Thomas doubted, Moses had a temper, Timothy had ulcers. And all of these people send the same message that every human being on earth, regardless of their gifts, regardless of their strengths and their calling, is weak and vulnerable and dependent on God and dependent on others. That's the only way to do life. Living without limits. This is about Christians who spend so much time giving out and looking after other people's needs that because they believe that looking after their own emotional well-being is actually a selfish act. We feel guilty for putting in a boundary and saying, no, I need a rest. And yet Jesus modeled this for us, a healthy way of resting. I'm going to let you into a secret. I wasn't here last Sunday morning. And the reason I didn't come was partly because I wasn't needed specifically for any role, but also because I had a really manic week the week before and a pretty busy week this week. And the only time that I had in my mind when I sat and looked, I had some things I had to do and Monday was our day off. And I said to Joe, I'm going to have to work half of our day off to get these things done. Oh, and also on Sunday evening, there was a unity service in the cathedral that I was involved in. And Joe said to me, why don't you just stay home and do your work? 
And for about 10 minutes, I sat there feeling really guilty. I mean, I should be in church. <laughs> Not for that long, but for 10 minutes. <laughs> then I did some praying, and then I got on with my work. <laughs> but, and, and, th- and that meant that Joe and I could have a day off together on Monday. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, we're not God, and it's not wrong to rest. Self-care is never a selfish act. It's simply good stewardship of the only gift that I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. So anytime I can listen to my true self and give it the care it requires, I'm not, doing, I'm not just doing it for me, I'm doing it for you guys as well <laughs> and for everybody else's lives who we touch. And lastly, a symptom that we are living some kind of degree of unhealthy spirituality is when we start to judge other people's spiritual journey. This isn't about being like, this is not about being like the Pharisees. This is, sorry. This is when we're, we're a bit like the Pharisees. We think we've got it all together and other people just don't. It's about judging other people's lives and their families and their decisions and their practices. Whether or not we voice or express our thoughts or opinions out loud, it's often the differences between us that lead us to hold perhaps what in our minds is a morally superior attitude. Maybe you've found yourself thinking this, oh, all artists are just flaky, or all engineers are just geeky, (laughs) or all men are immature, (laughs) or rich people are just selfish, or poor people are just lazy, or Anglicans are just traditional, or Pentecostals are too wacky. Whatever it is, we find that because we're different, we find ourselves holding an attitude, and yet, as Jesus says, We need to take the log out of our own eye before we remove the speck from our brothers. So I've gone through a big list there. And these are all symptoms that we may have a disconnect between our own emotional health and what God can do about it. And I'm not honestly trying to make anybody feel bad or anybody feel guilty here today. I wanted to flag this up to show that all of us have things we can bring to God and that all of us have things to learn from this series. And the way through these issues is by the life-transforming power of Jesus. And that can be found when we join our emotional health with a contemplative spirituality that seeks to slow down and meet with God and do it in ways that are helpful and to the test of time. I hope you're excited by this journey. I want to encourage you to push into it. If you're in a life group, some of the life groups will be picking this up this week or next week, whenever you start. Even if you're not in a life group, there are two books I would recommend that you might like to look at. One is just the, this is the main teaching. But this is a sort of day-by-day book. It's quite cheap. It's about four or five pounds, I think. You can buy it from Amazon. And it's just a kind of day-by-day, very short little passage each day around emotional health and bringing these things before God. And it may be that you want to look into that and, uh, and have a look at that for yourself. We're going to come to communion, which is a perfect place to come, having talked about all that, talked about all that stuff. So if you are, why don't we stand together? And if you are helping to serve communion, perhaps you could come and prepare. And we will just pause for a second and we will just invite the Holy Spirit again in the way that he is so present with us to continue to be present with us. And so, maybe the talk this morning has brought up things for you that something I've said has resonated with you in a way that makes you think, oh, yeah, that's something I need to look into. Maybe a helpful thing to do right now would just be to acknowledge that in, a, in a, just a short prayer and just to bring it before God. Say, so, you know what? Yes, God, I, I acknowledge there's this. There's 
dot, 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 fill in the gap. I acknowledge that there's this. For me, it would be a list. But these are the things. Allow, just allow the Holy Spirit to touch our lives and to speak to us and to lead us and to guide us. This isn't about anything I will say or any twisting of our arm or anything about making us feel guilty, but actually just to allow the Spirit to touch our lives. So if there are things that God is touching for you, if there are things that I've said and you're thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that's something I really need to deal with or that's something I need to look into more, then just tell the Lord that right now as we come to communion. Probably the most important truth or lesson in this whole book, this whole series is, frankly, just not to hide stuff. Just to be real. There is grace. We sang earlier the, that wonderful hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which, the, on which Jesus died. That in the hymn, in those words is the truth of the gospel. That everything we are and everything we've done and everything we would want to do all gets, gets its significance through the cross of Jesus. And that as he shed his blood for us, we are saved and healed and transformed and there is hope and there is life you know I read that verse um, I am a new creation the old is gone the new has come if you're in Christ you're a new creation that's what Paul says and we celebrate and we remind ourselves of that newness every time we take communion and so we're going to come in a second and we're going to take bread and we're going to take wine. And the bread, as Jesus said, is the body, is, is symbolic of the body of Jesus broken for him. And the wine is symbolic of his blood. And as we do that, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be so real to each of us. That you would be so real to us. And that we can bring all of ourselves before you, all our weaknesses, all our vulnerabilities, all our brokenness, all our pain, all our anxieties all our habits and patterns and the things that we've brought into adulthood from childhood, all of that stuff we bring before you and we bring before your cross. And in, in, in taking bread and wine now, we acknowledge the truth of your love and your victory and your power in our lives. And even if we're not experiencing that yet, we acknowledge it and we commit to pushing into that, to going on a journey of discovery for ourselves that we can find ways to uncover what's going on and bring it before you. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us in Jesus' name?